Hello everyone. Welcome to EconoFact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, founder and executive editor of EconoFact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At EconoFact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, drawing on the contributions from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended the world. Beyond its obvious health and economic impacts, it has also had an effect on politics. And in turn, politics has had an effect on the spread of the disease and its economic consequences. To discuss these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats, Professor Jeff Frieden of Harvard University. Jeff is a political scientist whose pathbreaking research demonstrates the linkages between politics and economics. Jeff, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thank you, Michael, it's my pleasure. It's great to have you on. You have an article in the latest issue of the IMF's publication, Finance and Development. In that article, you wrote, the COVID-19 pandemic strikingly illustrates the intersection of politics, economics, and other considerations. Can you briefly outline some of these linkages? Well, politicians are all about the next election, and they have to be, because if they don't win the next election, they're no longer going to be in office. And that means that they're thinking about the short run because elections are pretty much always on the horizon. The problem is that public health is really pretty much about the long run, not the short run. In public health, you vaccinate people for 15 or 20 years. You improve sanitation to make people better off over a 50-year horizon. Uh, you pre prevent against or prepare for an epidemic that might take place at some point in the next 20 years. So public health raises issues of the long run, and politicians really aren't always that great at thinking about the long run because they focus so much on the next election. That means that there are problems. Now, not all, not all is not lost because political systems develop ways of trying to counteract the short-term nature of politics. There is reputation. And politicians may only worry about the next election, but political parties have to worry about the long run. Political parties want to be in existence for a long time, hopefully forever. So they're worried if a, a politician who's a member of their party doesn't do the right thing with respect to public health, that that will reflect poorly on the party itself. So there are countervailing forces, but really there's a tension between the short-term focus of politicians and the long-term needs of public health. But the politicians, as you say, may in a way scar the political parties if they don't handle these crises well. Right. People don't like epidemics. They don't like pandemics. And eventually, you know, they're, they're going to punish a politician or even a political party if it seems not to be acting responsibly in terms of preparedness and response. And in the government, there are agencies other than the political parties or the politicians. There are expert agencies. For example, in the United States, there's the Center for Disease Control, the CDC. What role do these agencies play? 
a very important one because these independent agencies exist precisely because of the short-term problems that politicians face. Politicians recognize that there's a need to deal with things like public health or economic stability or financial stability. So they set up independent agencies, typically staffed by experts, whose job it is to worry about the long run. That's what the CDC is. It's an organization of tens of thousands of people who are experts in disease and disease control. And they aren't politicians. They're thinking about the long run. They're thinking about the long-term preparedness of our society for dealing with epidemics, disease, and other problems in public health. Well, I'm a macroeconomist, uh, macro not a public health person. I forgive but... you for that. <laughs> Thank you. That's very big of you. In macroeconomics, we talk about the role of the central bank and the importance of the independence of the central bank. And we also talk about the way political pressure can be and has been in the past brought upon the central bank when they're doing something that's not very popular in the short run or in the immediate uh, case. I imagine there's similar issues with agencies like the CDC and issues of public health. Absolutely. It's one thing to say we have an independent CDC or an independent central bank, but the reality is that almost all of these agencies are created by politicians, are created by governments. So although I think, in my view at least, an independent CDC staffed by experts is the best thing for society, there can be times when politicians might want to interfere in the behavior or the actions of the CDC or other independent agencies. That's true in the central banking as well. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it's a reality of politics. And yet the role of an independent uh, CDC, you would say, is really important, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's tasked with thinking about the long run. It's tasked with thinking about expert opinion, what the experts say, what the literature says, what's happening in the rest of the world. And that's something that politicians typically either don't know enough to act upon or don't have incentives to care about. So I think an agency like the CDC is absolutely essential. Now, Jeff, in the interest of full disclosure, your brother is Tom Frieden, who is the former head of the Center for Disease Control, right? Right. You found me out. And just to set the record straight, um, your other brother, Ken, is a professor as well. Correct. So, you know, the natural question arises of who did your parents love most, you uh -huh. or Tom or your brother, Ken? Well, um, they loved all three of us equally. At least that's what they told the other two. And as a political scientist, I guess you can think through that answer quite carefully. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, what have you learned from your brother, Tom, that informs your views of the political economy of the pandemic? It's, it's really fascinating because being in public health, as Tom is, is, has many similarities to being a social scientist. You look at the evidence, you look at the theory, you try to assess what's happening at the moment and how to, how to deal with it. Um, two things that really leap out at me uh, over the years, uh, having learned from Tom, the first is the, important, the importance for an agency like the CDC to have a clear and consistent and coherent message based on expert opinion. Uh, it's not based on politics. It's not, it's not based on expediency. It's based on what the literature, what the research, what the science says. And having that very clear, very coherent 
um, systematic message is crucial because then people know that they can trust the CDC or an agency like it to be to reflect the best practice and the best knowledge available. The other um, point, which I think is, is is very closely related, is the importance of trust in public health. Tom brought this home to me a lot when he was dealing with Ebola in West Africa. The CDC was deeply involved in trying to control the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And what he explained to me was that where the population of the region or the country had trust in the government, that is, believed the government was acting responsibly, believed that the government was acting in the best interest of the population, in those places, people cooperated. They did what the government asked. They undertook sometimes very difficult and costly and painful measures, but helped control the disease. In areas, on the other hand, where people didn't trust the government, where they thought the government was acting opportunistically or irresponsibly or lying to them, where that where the message from the government wasn't clear, uh, you got much less compliance and it was much harder to control the disease. So that kind of clarity of message and trust in government is very important. Well, those two things are really intimately related because right. if you don't get a clear, coherent message from the government, then the belief in the government is going to be impaired by that and the people are not going to trust the government, right? Right. Uh, we've seen examples of this recently. Uh, one of the developed countries that had the best response to the pandemic was Germany, which did substantially better than countries even on its own borders. And a large part of that was that from the very start, from the first hints of outbreaks, the German government gave a very clear, very consistent message. It was also the case that the German government had prepared, that there had been a lot of attention paid to being prepared for a pandemic or an epidemic of this sort. But the clarity of messaging in the German case, I think, was very important. And you mentioned preparedness. Um, the CDC is instrumental in ensuring that the country is prepared for crises like these. At least it should be, correct? Right, right. And, and you know, the CDC made some mistakes at the beginning of this pandemic, but I think that shouldn't obscure the fact that it is the repository of the best expert knowledge in the country and probably in the world on epidemic control, especially in diseases like, like this one. So the CDC really is the essential agency. And the fact that in the US at least, it's sort of been sidelined, I think is a problem. Um, it, it contributes to the lack of confidence in what the government is putting out, and it has contributed to a very choppy um, and, and disconnected set of messages that people get. Different states are doing different things. The federal government says one thing at one time and another thing at another time. I think that makes it much more difficult for both the people and the relevant governments to come up with a coherent message and a coherent set of policies. So I think it's unfortunate that the CDC has been sidelined to the extent that it has. Well, you identified me as a macroeconomist, so I'll use the analogy here that the Federal Reserve at a time of a recession, like in 2008, was undertaking policies that weren't necessarily popular or in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when inflation was very high, undertook policies that weren't popular. So I guess the same thing now, right, where there's a tension between policies like trying to keep the pandemic from spreading by shutting down the economy and the natural political backlash against that. 
That's right. That's right. Well, some of this, I think, is based in a misconception that the economic difficulties we're facing are the result of government policy. All the evidence we have is that the economy started shutting down long before there were lockdown measures. People were scared. People were not going to work. People weren't taking their kids out of school. So, yes, there is a political difficulty in adopting the appropriate measures. We have an account of fact memo about that, in fact, that shows that the shutdown occurred in states before the mandated lockdown occurred because precisely what you're saying, because people's fear about about these things. Right. I mean, there's always a tension in almost every policy. There's a tension um, among different groups in the population or short run, long run. Preparedness is another one, right? Um, we were not adequately prepared for some of what happened with the pandemic. The Germans were. They were ready with contact tracing and isolation and quarantining. Uh, and it's sometimes difficult to get politicians to focus on the budgetary, economic, and other needs of preparedness. They'd much rather deal with immediate problems that are confronting them between now and the next election. But preparedness is difficult. You know, you have to set aside things and um, come back to, to, uh, to what's important from a public health standpoint. So you're voicing here sort of a basic insight from political economy that policies that might be good for the country as a whole generate winners and losers. And in this pandemic, they're clearly losers from the pandemic itself, foremost, of course, those who become sick and those who die. But they're also losers if the quarantine orders are put in place. Economists are often blamed for ignoring the tensions between winners and losers, especially when they say things like, well, potentially the winners could compensate the losers, which doesn't really happen. How has this played out in the COVID-19 era? Well, of course, it is certainly true that some groups of the population have suffered much more, both from the disease itself and from the economic effects. We know that some communities have been particularly hard hit both by the disease and by uh, the economic impact of, of, of the shutdown and, and also of uh, the, the direct impact of the disease itself. And I have to say that you know, things aren't perfect, but if you compare it, for example, to the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, there's been a lot of government policy um, to, uh, to try to alleviate some of the suffering. There's been a direct attempt in this, in the United States, at least in the current pandemic, to actually get money into the hands of the people who are most directly affected by augmenting unemployment insurance, by getting direct payments into people's hands. We didn't see that in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And that's why people were angry. They saw hundreds of billions of dollars going to big banks and corporations, but none going to or very little going to the people. I think today, fortunately, we do see government measures to actually help those who are directly affected, the people who have lost the most from this disease. So it's not perfect, but I would say that some aspect of this response to COVID-19 has been encouraging, especially compared to the reaction to the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009. More can be done and more will have to be done. Um, we do owe a tremendous debt to the essential workers, to the populations that provide so many of these essential workers, and they will have to be compensated for all the sacrifices that they've made. Well, um, we have in the interest of advertising, a lot of Econofact memos, as you well know, on this very topic. Another point, Jeff, is that in your finance and development article, you wrote, microbes do not respect borders. This is a global pandemic and global problems need global solutions, right? 
So what does this say about the need for international cooperation? Well, public health and global public health is probably the single strongest argument for global cooperation, precisely because diseases don't know where the boundaries are. It doesn't do you any good to try to stamp out mumps or measles or originally smallpox within your borders if all the countries surrounding you still have it endemic in their populations. So for a long time, there's been cooperation on global public health. It's not always easy because um, countries may try to, you know, free ride on others. That is, they say, if everybody else is stamping out set smallpox, why would I bother to? But global public health is something that requires global cooperation. It's, it's quite obvious that you can't stamp out or control a pandemic in one country alone. So if a global response is required, what's the role of international institutions like the World Health Organization? Organizations like the WHO, the World Health Organization, are the, are the epitome of this global cooperation. It's one thing to talk about cooperation among 220 countries. It's another thing to actually organize it. And what the WHO does is provide a structure, an infrastructure that allows for the, the transmission of information, for monitoring, for enforcing, for, tra- for, for sharing best practices, for even sharing resources, money, um, equipment, medicine. It's one thing to talk about cooperation, but to organize it is the only real way to get it done. So I think there are reasons why an organization like the WHO has arisen. There are reasons why virtually every country in the world is a member. There are reasons why it's essential to the control of global public health problems, and especially to a pandemic like the current one. So again, from an economics perspective, this makes perfect sense. But from a political economy perspective, we've seen a lot of pushback and hamstringing of the WHO. What is the source of that? Well, even though every country might agree and does agree, I think, on the desirability of global cooperation in public health, they have different views. And so especially the big countries might say, we'd like this to be carried out in our way. And other countries might want it to be carried out in a different way. The the United States has a different attitude towards the pandemic than the Chinese have had or than the Europeans have had. And so each of the big powers, in a sense, is jockeying for position within the WHO. I think it's very unfortunate that the positive impact that the WHO can have and has had in global public health is being obscured to some extent by the um, internecine nationalistic attacks on it by some quarters. Very unfortunate. And it's an impediment to dealing more constructively with these global public health issues. Well, it's not just the fact that different countries have different views. There's also seems to be scapegoating going on. The WHO is a convenient scapegoat for countries' own failures. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, it's, it's very easy for any national politician to say, I'm competent, I'm doing the right thing, it's the foreigner's fault. And I think, you know, that's, that's you know, sometimes it's true, but in the case of global public health, it's really not true that the enemy is some other country or the WHO. The enemy is the virus. And every country in the world has the same enemy. It's not like we're fighting each other. We're all fighting the virus. And the less time is spent scapegoating other countries or scapegoating the WHO, and the more time is spent working together to try to come up with a vaccine, to try to come up with treatment, to try to share resources and knowledge, the better off we'll all be. So I think it's very sad 
that so much time, energy, and effort has gone into conflict when cooperation would be so much more productive? Well, as you said, cooperation is the key thing at this point, not only across the globe, but even within a country to have a unified message and to help engender greater belief and trust in the government to fight what has become the greatest public health challenge in 100 years. So, Jeff, thank you very much for these comments and these insights. I think they're very valuable and really have helped us understand the politics and the political economy behind the pandemic. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and see the work on our site, you can log in to www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Have a good day.